Praise God. Let's go to the Word of God. Let's go to John chapter 11. I'm going to share from John 12, but I'm going to start in John uh, the 11th chapter. In John chapter 11, Now this is the story, John chapter 11 is the story of the raising of Lazarus. The story of the raising of Lazarus. And uh, this is what happened, uh, verse 45, 46. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Lazarus did, believed on him. So. Uh, many of the Jews who were there, actually, well, they were all Jews, you know, at that time uh, in that area. So many of those uh, who saw what Jesus did, they believed in Jesus when they saw the raising up of Lazarus. But not, not everybody had the same reaction because verse 46 says, but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. So many of the Jews, they believed in Jesus, but there were some who were angry and they, heard that the, they had heard that the Pharisees Pharisees didn't like Jesus, so they told Pharisees what Jesus had done, and the subsequent verses tell us that, uh, uh, that the Pharisees got together, they had a council, and they decided, it says in verse 53, from that day forth they took counsel together to put him to death. These people had a simple solution, just kill them, you know. Uh, someone they didn't like, just kill them. So they decided that Jesus should be put to death. Now let's go to the 12th chapter. And all this actually happened just before the Passover. And the Passover is an interesting time because it's, it's their biggest feast and, uh, all, and thousands of Jews from the then known world, of course, you know, there were parts of the world that they didn't know of at that time, like places like Southeast Asia and America were hitherto undiscovered. But the known world at that time, wherever there were Jews, Jews would come from all over. They would converge on Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And all this, this raising of Lazarus happened just before Passover. And all those Jews were there, and they heard of this wonderful miracle that Jesus had done. So everyone was excited, everybody wanted a piece of Jesus. You know, they wanted to see Jesus, they wanted to see Lazarus. So it says, verse nine in chapter 12, much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests, their response, but the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. As I said, these people had a very simple solution for all their problems, kill them, you know. So they want to kill Jesus, now they want to kill Lazarus. And now, what happens, and immediately after that is that famous incident, you know, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and people wave palm branches and they shout, you know, they're shouting Hosanna to the king and everybody's all excited. And that's called the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Jesus rides into Jerusalem uh, in triumph and he's, I mean, he is at the, you can say that he was at the height of his popularity. His ministry had never been as popular as it was right then. He was right at the peak, you know. Uh, at that time, eh? because everyone is excited. They're calling him their king, and they're praising him and shouting his praises. So he rides into Jerusalem, 
And then, uh, in, in fact, the Pharisees even said, look how the whole world is following him. That's what they say in verse 19. They said, a bit of an exaggeration, but they said the whole world is following this man. You know, he's so popular. So, and then, let's go to verse 20. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. These were Jews who had come from Greece. The same came therefore to Philip, which was a bit side of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip comes and tells Andrew, and again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Now, this is interesting. Jesus was... Uh, uh, at the height of his popularity, he was extremely popular among the, uh, among the general populace. But of course, the Pharisees wanted to kill him. But the people generally liked him. And he rides into Jerusalem in triumph. His ministry has never been as popular as it was then. And then these, these uh, Grecian Jews, you know, they, they hear about him. And they come to his disciples and they say, sir, we want to see Jesus. And uh, they come to Jesus. And they're so excited. Everybody wants to see Jesus. And they said, Jesus, here's some people from Greece who want to see you. And here's the striking thing. Immediately, Jesus begins to talk about his death. That is how he responded when people wanted to see him. Now, I want you to realize this. If, if this was today, if this was an American preacher today, he would have probably said something, you know, guys, my ministry is more popular than ever before. People love me. My ratings are so high. Let us postpone this thing with the cross about three more years. Let us milk this thing and uh, ride this thing, you know. Let us ride this wave and, and milk this thing for three more years, three more years, and we'll see how things goes. And maybe, you know, I'll die on the cross afterwards. But, but this is a, wow, wow this, is a, this is a great situation, you know. This is... Amazing. I mean, did you see the way when I rode into Jerusalem, people were throwing up their coats and throwing it on the ground, and they were calling me their king? This is amazing. But no, Jesus didn't let his popularity distract him from the real purpose he had in his heart. That is why he came to this world to die for the sins of mankind. He didn't let anything take him away from that. And so this is what he says. He, when they say, you know, we want to see Jesus. And verse 23, this is how he begins this little monologue he has. He says, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So he begins to talk about his death. He, he begins to liken himself to a grain of wheat, that a grain of wheat, if it is to multiply, it has to die. Because if it doesn't die, if it's not buried, it will abide alone. But if it die, it's going to grow and multiply. <coughs> Excuse me. So he, he begins to talk about his own death, that he must die in order to in order to bear fruit, I just have to die. And not only that, but he talks about our death also. He's talking not about his own, his own death, he's talking about you and me. He says, he that loves his life shall lose it, and he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. That means I'm going to the cross. If you want to see me, go to the cross with me. Now this is interesting. He's talking about his own death, then he's talking about us, that if we are to follow Jesus, we have to die, and if we love this life, we shall lose it. 
and if we hate this life, we shall find it. Now that, that is very, uh, I, I must, and I say this respectfully, that's a very a concept that is very foreign to Americans. You know, and especially in our word of faith teaching because we, we think, you know, we are here in this world and God wants me to have a b- bigger house, a better car, a new refrigerator and, 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 a, and a mink coat for my wife and uh, uh, I, w- I don't want to wear a Timex anymore. I'm going to wear a Rolex. You know, I mean, we, we think of the gospel in those terms, you know. But really the gospel is about dying. I remember when I got saved, look, I came out of Islam, I was 21 years old, never met a Christian, never met a Bible, and I remember December 1975 when I got saved, and uh, the first time I ever saw a Bible, with these eyes I ever saw a Bible, uh, um, the guy, he said to me, come sit down next to me, when I said, I want to follow Jesus, and he said, do you know the conditions for following Jesus? I said, I didn't know there were conditions. I just thought you got saved and your sins are forgiven. You feel good and it's okay. He said, no, there are conditions. So uh, I'll show you the conditions. So I sat down next to him and he pulled out a book. I'd never seen a Bible before and he told me to hold it. And, and, and uh, I said, sir, I can't hold it because uh, in, in Islam, you know, uh, we have to wash our hands when we hold a holy book, and uh, the Bible is a holy book for them. So he said, no, it's okay. So I, I opened the, he opened the Bible, and he put his finger on a verse. He said, read this, and he made me read it three times. And this is what he said. It said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow after me. And what shall it profit a man if it if he gained the whole world and lose his soul. I read it three times. He says, do you see the conditions of following Jesus? I said, yeah, here it says I have to deny myself. He said, are you willing to do that? I said, yeah, I can do that. He says, do you know what it means to take up your cross to follow Jesus? I said, no, sir, I don't. He said, Jesus took up the cross once and that was when he was going to his place of execution. He says, in the days of Jesus, if he ever saw a man carrying a cross, he was a condemned prisoner going to his place of execution. And Jesus tells us that we have to live like dead men. We have to be willing to lay down our lives. You see, if you're not ready to die for Jesus, you're not fit to live for him. And those words have stuck in my life. And those words have, how should I say, determined the course of my life from that day onwards. Those are my, my, uh, the, the, my fundamental ethos in life. That's what I live by. You know, those things that you hear when you're a new believer, uh, the, they, they kind of in some way um, decide what perspective you're going to have the rest of your life. So for me, my perspective, the gospel through which I got saved, it is about we take up our cross and follow Jesus. If I'm not fit to die for him, I'm not fit to live for him. Do you understand what I'm saying? And this is not a bad confession. This is the word of God. Amen? Amen. Now some of you look like you're shell-shocked, but (laughs) I'm telling you this from the Bible. That's what the Bible says, you know? So, uh, you know, so there there is one side of the gospel where God wants to bless us. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all that you know, uh, and all these things shall be given to you and delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. But that is not the entirety of the gospel. Uh, all these things are, result, are, are a result of us 
willing to take up our cross to follow him. You know, there's a promise in the Bible. He says, uh, and, and you must understand the context of that promise. When Peter said, Lord, we have forsaken all to follow you. And that's what Jesus said. He says, you who have forsaken all to follow me, to you I will give hundredfold lands and houses and brothers and sisters and persecutions. And in the ages to come, eternal life. Now, we can pick some things out of there and have our own gospel. But if you look at the whole picture, it's about taking up our cross and following Jesus and being willing to leave everything. And it is in that context God gives us hundredfold, whatever we have forsaken, he outgives us. You can never outgive God, but he outgives you every time. In full measure, he blesses you back. And then he says, but you will also have persecution. But in the ages to come, you will have eternal life. Hallelujah. You're going to go to heaven and be with me forever. So that's the, that's the, that's the fuller picture of the gospel. Are you with me? So now, now you're thinking, you know, uh, I was thinking, why is Jesus in this kind of mood? You know, he's talking about, seems to be a cloud over him. He's talking about these Greeks just want to see him. They want to shake his hand, have his autograph, and shake their hand and bless them, say a prayer, and let them get it over. He's talking about dying, his own death. And if you want to see me, you also have to die. Why? I believe he, he was really mulling over this because, you see, he... He had had three and a half years of powerful ministry, healing the sick, casting out devils, working miracles, multiplying the bread and the fish, all those wonderful things. And now he's right at the final stages of his earthly life. This is the last couple of days. And now he's he's really, it's weighing heavy on him what he's going to go through when he goes to the cross. And the greatest thing that was that was really bothering him was the thing that when he would be upon the cross bearing our sins upon himself, he would lose his fellowship with the Father. The Father would look at him and because of our sins, the Father would turn his face away from Jesus. And for the first time in eternity, Jesus would be left alone with the Father. And just that thought was too much for him to bear. That kind of price. So that's why at Gethsemane he prayed. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass me by. In other words, is there any other way to do this without me losing my fellowship with you? But, he, but that was his, how should say, his, ins, his survival instinct. But he had another instinct that was greater than his survival instinct, and that was his love for sinners. He loved you and me so much that he said, Father, but nevertheless, not mine, but your will be done. His love for sinners overrode his instinct of self-preservation. So that was the most painful thing that he would have to go through, losing his communion, his fellowship with the Father, and then he would be cursed. And he said, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? Just the thought that he would have to go through all that all that terrible suffering and rejection and loneliness just to set you and free from our sins. And, you know, if you understood that, you would really value your salvation and live for God and not have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. If you really value and, 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 and understood the price that was paid by Jesus 
so that I can call myself a child of God. He paid a terrible price. And he went totally all, all out for it. And so that's why as a Christian, you and I have to go all out for it because of the price that was paid for that which is offered to us. So anyways, he's talking about his own death. He's talking about that we also have to die. And then he says, uh, verse 27, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. This, this is really bothering him, really troubling him. He said, what shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? He said, no, because for this cause I came to this hour. He said, I came because of this. So I'm not going to ask the Father to set me free from this, but I'm going to go into this and because this is why I came to this world. And then verse 28, he says, Father, glorify thy name. And there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Interesting, because when he begins this little, uh, this little monologue in verse 23, he's saying the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And he ends it in verse 28 by saying, Father, glorify thy name. Now, what, what is the glory of God. Um, when I hear about the glory of God, the first thing that crosses my mind is, is uh, uh, I, I remember I heard about it when I was in Bible school. I've never experienced it myself, but I've had people and friends who tell me that uh, they were in a meeting and the presence of God came and they saw something called a glory cloud. You probably heard of it, Pastor Ray a glory cloud. It was like a mist or a cloud on the platform over the sanctuary. And that's the, our first thing we think of when we think of the glory of God is we think of the glory of, the, you know, a glory cloud. Other people say, you know, when the glory of God comes on somebody, uh, I've been in ministry 43 years and I've seen it twice when people's face have literally shone like light bulbs, like looking at a light bulb, you know, if people's faces shining, that's the glory of God. So when, whenever we think of the glory of God, it's always some wonderful manifestation of the presence or the power of God, uh, uh, like something wonderfully miraculous. So that's the glory of God. But here Jesus is referring to something else as being glorious. He's talking about the time when he would be arrested and they would strip him of his clothes and those Roman soldiers would take a flagrum, which is a, a, a whip with nine long belts of leather with sharp pieces of metal and bone, and they would whip him and whip him and whip him and pieces of flesh and skin would be torn off his back and he would be bleeding. And, and uh, as, as the psalmist said, that plowmen have plowed my back and made long furrows. He'd, his back would look like a plowed field, then they would crown him with thorns, and then they would take those sticks and beat him up so that his face was disfigured beyond recognition, and then covered with his own blood, covered with the spit of sinners, covered with dirt. He would be made to carry that cross across Jerusalem to Calvary, where they would crucify him, and he would hang there for six hours bearing upon himself the sins, the diseases, the, all the miseries of all mankind, and he would die a horrible, lonely death, forsaken by God and forsaken by his own people. And that horrible death, he calls it glorious. That horrible death, he calls it glorious, that God is glorified. 
Now, I'm going to give you five reasons why the cross of Jesus was so glorious. The first reason why this is so glorious is because uh, it says in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. The first reason the cross of Jesus is glorious is because when Jesus was upon that cross, God judged the world for its sins. God took the sins of all mankind from the first human being, Adam, to the last human being who's going to walk on this earth. All your sins, my sins, our secret sins, our open sins, our, uh, our big sins, our little sins, the sins of all these, all terrible, all the terrible people you can think of, you know, uh, horrible things that people do that we read about in the newspapers every day. All those sins, God took all those sins and put them upon Jesus. God judged the sins of all mankind upon the cross of Jesus. Amen. That is the first reason the cross is so glorious. And because of that, people can be saved, hallelujah. Because of that, people can walk away from their sins and they can be saved and they can be set free from their sins. That was because God judged the sins of this world. God put his judgment on the sins of this world at the cross. And that is why we are, we are not living in an era of judgment. You know, anytime, anytime something bad happens somewhere, people assume that God is judging that. God is sending tsunamis and hurricanes and earthquakes and he's killing people and Hurricane Katrina. God is judging New Orleans. That is nonsense. And people prophesy over these things. Let me just say this one thing. Prophecy or any of the gifts of the Holy Spirit have not given to the church by God for us to judge or condemn people. They are for exhortation, for edification, and for comfort. They are not to judge people. We are not living in an era of judgment. We are living in the era of the gospel. When God is extending his mercy, his salvation, to all sinners everywhere. everywhere. Now, there will come a time of judgment. The Bible says at the end of the days, all mankind will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and that is going to come. And thank God, you and I will not be there to see that. You wouldn't want to be there. Amen? Amen. But I hear, I hear people say, you know, other day a brother said to me, well, if God is so just, you know, why doesn't he judge all the bad people? I said, you know, you would be the first one to go. Has that ever occurred to you? He said, how can he say? I said, because your problem is you are self-righteous. You think, when you say a thing like that, you mean that God is going to judge everybody except you. And that's self-righteous, and that makes you, that's the worst of all sins. Because the moment, you know, your self-righteousness puts you right at the bottom of the barrel. So you might think you're up there, but you're not. You're down there because you're self-righteous. Are you with me? And uh, 
I mean, look, I mean, look at the Apostle Paul, you know. I mean, he, he was, I must say, he was somehow, you know, in Philippians, how he says, well, according to the law, righteous. You know, he actually believed he was righteous according to the law. But as time went, he realized he was nothing without Jesus. If you put the letters of Paul in chronological order at the end, last epistle, he says, I'm the worst of all sinners. Right? From being the guy who was righteous under the law, he became the worst of all sinners. And that, this, uh, the biggest sign of Christian maturity is when you realize that you're nothing without Jesus. Amen. Amen. When you realize you are really, really a nobody without Jesus, then you have arrived somewhere. You've begun your journey. That's, that's a sign of maturity. Amen. Amen. So, but... Upon the, that's the first reason the cross is so glorious because upon the cross, God judged the sins of the whole world. Now, the second reason the cross is so glorious is because it's in the same verse. He says, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. The second reason the cross of Jesus is so glorious is because upon the cross, Jesus defeated the devil decisively once and for all because it says... In Colossians 2.15, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. That means upon the cross, Jesus triumphed, triumphed over the devil and defeated him decisively once and for all. So Satan has been defeated. Amen. Amen. Satan has been defeated. And, 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 and he has given us power and authority over him through the name of Jesus. I mean, two weeks ago, you know, I just came from India a week ago. Two weeks ago in India, there was this, uh, uh, this uh, family that brought their, uh, brought their daughter. She was 15 years old and said that she, she is demon-possessed. And, and I mean, the girl was completely crazy. You couldn't talk to her. She was out of her mind. She had lost of her mind, lost her mind. She was saying all these crazy things, was totally demon-possessed. She was, uh, when she saw me, she tried to run away. I said, just hold on to her. They held on to her. And I finally, you know, she wouldn't let me touch her. I finally managed to get one hand on her head. And I just looked at her. I said, in the name of Jesus, devil, come out of her in Jesus' name. No, so people might think, oh, but then she has to fall and she has to scream. No, nothing of that sort. I just put my hand on her. I said, come out of her in Jesus' name. I told the mother, I said, just take her away, bring her back. She came back two nights later, completely normal. She was smiling. I had a picture taken with her. I put it on my Facebook page and, you know, she was completely normal. You know why? Because the name of Jesus has power and authority over all kinds of devils. And Jesus has defeated the devil once and for all. And that is why we have, you know, this is a part of the gospel. Casting out demons is a part of the gospel. We have to cast out devils. This is something that Jesus has given us the mandate to do. Amen. Amen. So Jesus has took care of the devil once and for all. The third reason the cross is so glorious is found in Colossians 2.14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Jesus 
took the law of Moses out of the way, nailed it to the cross so that the law of Moses is not our means of salvation. Because the law was a hard taskmaster, but the law was also a teacher to lead us to Christ. That was the purpose of the law. But, you know, but people tried to keep the law, keep the law, keep the law to be accepted by God, and it never worked. Paul said in Romans chapter 3, he said, by the works of the law can no man be justified in his sight. So because of this, because when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says he took the ordinances, the law that was against us, that actually witness that spoke against us. Every time we failed the law, you know, we were condemned by the law. Our conduct was held up against the law and we were failures. He took the, he fulfilled the law and then at his, at, you know, when he, in his life he fulfilled the law and then when he died on the cross, he took the law out of the way and made salvation available to us by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. So he took the law out of the way. So that was the thing. Now that might not mean much to you and me, but to a Jewish person, that means a lot. Someone who has grown up under the law, boy, that's big to be, to be able to say, wow, I, so I don't have to do all this. I don't have to, you know, for, follow all the commandments of Moses to be accepted by God. This is big. You mean I, all I have to do is to believe in Jesus and be saved. That's a huge, huge thing. May not, maybe not for you and me, but for a Jewish person who is, I must correct myself, a Jewish person who has lived and grown up in Judaism, that's huge. Right? So that's the third Reason the cross is so glorious. The fourth reason the cross is so glorious is found in Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5. Where it says, surely he has borne our diseases and carried our pains. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we were healed. Hallelujah. The fourth reason the cross is so glorious is because upon the cross, Jesus Christ bore upon his physical body all of our diseases and all of our infirmities. And the Bible says that by his stripes we have been healed. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. By his stripes we have been healed. By his, because divine healing is an integral part of the atonement. It's an integral part of the gospel and it is there for every believer. It is the right and the privilege of every believer. Healing belongs to us. Hallelujah. Healing belongs to us. Amen. So the first reason the cross was so glorious is because upon that cross Jesus judged all the sins of mankind. The second reason the cross is so glorious is because upon the cross Jesus defeated the devil decisively and once and for all. The third reason the cross is so glorious is because Jesus took the law of Moses out of the way and made salvation offered uh, op, you know, available to us through faith alone. And the fourth reason the cross of Jesus is so glorious is because upon the cross he bore upon himself all of our physical and our mental diseases and infirmities. You know, because you can be sick in your body, you can also be sick in your mind. Jesus took it out of the way. Now, the, the fifth reason the cross of Jesus is so glorious is found in verse 32. 
and 33. It says, and if I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. In, what he meant was that when I am nailed to that cross and that cross is lifted up, I'm going to draw all men unto me. It's interesting because when Jesus was on that cross, the doors of salvation were open to all mankind. Because when he walked on this earth, he basically said things like, I'm only, you know, he said salvation is for the Jews. And he said, I'm only uh, sent to the lost sheep of, of the house of Israel. His message was basically for the Jews. And those are the people he ministered to. Those are the people who preached to. And there were, there were people like, uh, like the Phoenician woman who's, was, whose daughter was demon possessed, but she really had to squeeze something out of him, you know. But generally speaking, his ministry was to the Jews only. But when he died upon the cross, he says, I will draw all men unto me. When Jesus hung upon that cross, because of him, everybody can now be saved. You can be a Jew, you can be an Arab, you can be Chinese, you can be Japanese, you can be Indian. It doesn't matter, you are black, white, whatever your race, your color. Every human being, you know, can be redeemed, can be saved, can come to Jesus. Hallelujah. And that is the, that is, I mean, that, that is a huge thing. All mankind can now be saved and have a seat at the table together with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And by faith, we can all inherit the blessings of Abraham. It is right there. Because of the blood of Jesus, it has been made available to us. Hallelujah. So those are the five reasons why the cross was so glorious. And that's why when Jesus was going to go through that painful time of dying on the cross, he says, now is come the time that the Son of Man will be glorified. And he said, Father, glorify thy name. And the Father said, yes, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Hallelujah. I want to end by sharing one scripture with you, uh, which is Galatians 6.14. And these are the words of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And uh, I mean, he knew the law and uh, again, but this is what he says. He says, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I unto the world. Hallelujah. Paul said, you know, he said that I, he looked at the cross and I mean Galatians 2.19 he says, I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ liveth in me. And this life that I now live in this body, in this flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what he's talking about, he's saying that the cross separates him from his self-righteousness, and it also separates him from the world. He says, through the cross, I am dead to the world. I am dead to the world. The world has no hold on me, and the world is dead to me. That means there's nothing in the world that I want. Now, this brings to mind something called separation. You know, there's a scripture which says, this is what the Lord says. He says, come out from among them and I will be your father and you will be my children. I want you to consider this because in the world, the humanists, they say, well, we are all God's children. You know, anybody, because we are all the offspring of Abraham, 
we are all God's children. Now, if you ask people in church, they would say, no, no, we are not all God's children. You are a child of God if you have prayed the sinner's prayer. So someone prays a sinner's prayer. But I'll be honest with you, I don't believe that. Because look, you saw those pictures. I had tens of thousands of people who pray the sinner's prayer with me. But I look at it this way, that the ones who are truly saved are the ones who sow some fruit in their lives. Praying a prayer does not make a man a child of God. But it's more than that. Who is a child of God? Jesus says, come out from among them. Then I'll be your father and you'll be my children. So the secret to sonship lies in separation from the world. That's a part and part of the gospel and because it is not preached so often today, a lot of people, they think it's okay to be worldly and be Christian at the same time. In fact, the line between worldliness and walking by God has become so fuzzy and the line has almost disappeared. So when you talk about holiness, you know, oh my goodness, you're legalistic. Amen. I'm not legalistic because the Bible says that be ye holy, even as your father is holy. Amen. Holiness means separation. That's what holiness means. It doesn't mean walking on eggshell and being perfect because nobody's perfect. Holiness means to be separated, to look at myself. You know, you, uh, that means we have to understand what it is to live in this world but not be of this world. How can I live in this world but not be of this world? That's what it means to be holy or to be sanctified, to be separated unto God, to look at my life that, you know, I live for Jesus, I'm in this world, but uh, I don't want to be of this world because the world is crucified to me and I'm crucified to the world. Through the cross of Jesus, I'm dead to the world and the world is dead to me. There's nothing in the world that has its hold on me and there's nothing in the world that I want because uh, my home is in heaven. You know, uh, two of my, f uh, I lost three friends this week. Uh, two of them had their funerals yesterday. Uh, and one, he passed away yesterday morning. Dear friends, men of God. And, uh, and you know, I, 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 as I, as I con contemplate these things, I, I, I realize that, that, you know, there's nothing really in this world I can take with me. The only thing, I, there's only one thing I can take with me from this world. You know what that is? The souls I win for Jesus. That's really the only thing I can take with me. So, uh, you know, you come to a place in your life when you go to realize and you go to ask yourself, now, what are the things in my life that have eternal value? Because everything else I'm going to leave behind, what are the things in my life that are of eternal value? And these are, these are some heart-to-heart -heart things because I cannot tell you... Uh, what to do, what not to do, because in the previous generations, they used to do that. They used to uh, say, this is worldly, and so if you want to walk for God, you know, women especially, you don't cut your hair, you don't wear makeup, uh, you don't wear jewelry, because that is worldly. I'm not going to talk about, because that stuff is religious nonsense, but what it comes down to is each one of us has to get before God and search our hearts and ask the Lord. I said, Lord, is there anything in my life 
that is worldly? Is there anything that displeases you, Father? Because I don't want anything in my life that comes between you and me. And then let God deal with you and tell you what to cut out of your life. Amen. Amen. Because that is a part of our journey of faith. Hallelujah. And uh, uh, that is a key to living victoriously in this world so that we can be in this world but not of this world and we can walk as sons of God in a, in a dark and dying world and we can live with, uh, with the power of sonship in this world that is perishing. Hallelujah. God is not looking for people who will separate themselves, go to a mountain and sit in a cave and meditate because we are so afraid of this world. But God is looking for sons who will walk in kingdom power, in sonship here on this world and be holy and be separated and be joyful and be full of power and full of his grace and, uh, and, and be a light wherever they go. Hallelujah. And, and, and if we don't have those factors in our lives, that's where we have to sit down and ask ourselves, Father, what is it in my life that you want to clean out? Here I am. You just speak to me and I will get rid of whatever. And, and it, it's different things in different people's lives. It is what is a God in your life may not be a God for me. And it depends upon what it is. Are you with me? Amen. May the Lord deal with our hearts and work in all our lives so that we can, we, we can walk with him and we can serve him. Hallelujah. Let's bow our heads together. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we honor you. We glorify you. We praise you. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your holy word. Thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Father, I pray for each one of my brothers and sisters in this place. Father, even for myself, that you would do your work in our lives, Father, that uh, as we walk on this journey, we would be more and more like you. There'd be less of us and more of you, Father, in us, in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. While your head's about, I just want to ask, I know this is Sunday morning church time, just want to ask if there's anybody here, and you say, Pastor Christopher, if I was to die, I don't know whether I'm going to heaven or to hell, or you just say, you know, I need to get my life Right with God. If there's anybody in that situation, you need to get right with God. You need to make things right with God. Let me just see your hand because I want to pray with you. If there's anybody, you need to get right with God. I'll give you a few more seconds. Otherwise, I'll assume everybody here has peace with God, which is a most wonderful thing. But if there, even if there's one person who needs to get right with God, you could slip up your hand right now. Okay, let's all stand up together. Let's stand up and lift up our hands to God and make a consecration to the Lord. In your own words, I want you to pray. I want you to, I want you to talk to Jesus and, uh, and just uh, pray and talk to Jesus. Just talk to him. Lift up your hands to God as a sign of surrender and consecration and uh, talk to Jesus and uh, offer up your life to him. Father, I give my life to you. I ask you to work in my life. I ask you to deal with my life, Father. Father, Father, draw me closer to you, Father. Uh, you said if I draw close to you, you will draw close to me. And Father, right now I draw close to you because I want you to do your work in my life for me to be more fruitful, Father, so that you make my, so that my life really counts for something, for your kingdom, Father. Use me for your glory and 
bless me and touch my life and bless me and bless my family and bless my loved ones, Father. Do your work in me, Father, in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. If there's anything in my life that is not pleasing to you, Father, I nail that to the cross. I, I put all those things, I give them all to you, Father. Jesus, Jesus, be glorified. Jesus, be glorified. Jesus, be glorified.